Hi there, it's Matt here, and welcome back to the podcast. I really wanted to hear all about insomnia from a real clinician who is treating insomnia patients daily, Dr. Michael Grandner. I was going to ask about the question, and it is mechanistically related, how we think about the difference between insomnia across different sexes. So how are men and women different in terms of the insomnia susceptibility? Obviously, both groups need to be highly aware. But tell me a little bit about that and perhaps why, if there are any differences, why you think that that may be the case. Historically, and by that I mean anytime anyone's really looked, women tend to experience more insomnia than men on average, with the asterisk that the definition of insomnia requires a willingness of the person to say they're having difficulty with something. And we also know that women tend to be a little more willing to say that they're struggling with something. So do women have more insomnia? The scientist in me says, well, the data suggests yes, but there are some assumptions in the data that I don't know exactly how true they are. But that said, Women are more likely to present in the insomnia clinic. They're more likely to report insomnia symptoms. But they're also, if my clinical experience generalizes to anybody else, I get really excited when someone shows up on the schedule who hasn't been bounced around the system for 20 years. Because for women, what seems to be the case is they'll get every diagnosis except insomnia for decades, whether it's depression or stress or anxiety or fatigue, a lot of fatigue or pain. And the clinicians are sort of focusing on those things. And then the insomnia remains because at that point you have conditioned arousal anyway. So one thing I should say is insomnia is likely more prevalent in women, especially as you get older, because there's more that can get in the way of sleep as you get older. But also there are certain life transitions that impact sleep that seem to be more sensitive to women. For example, pregnancy. Pregnancy disrupts sleep dramatically and having a newborn also disrupt sleep dramatically. And it could be months. And if you want to condition a response that trying to sleep is difficult, being pregnant and having a newborn forces sleep to be difficult for months at a time. You'll learn that pattern. So that's one life transition. Talking about that too, in terms of female life transitions, and I think I've probably not done a very good job at gaining public awareness for this, which is another female-specific transition period. And it lasts also many months, if not years, and that's the perimenopausal period and menopause. Could you maybe just say a few words about how you approach sleep and menopause in the women that you're seeing who are going through that transition? Yeah, the data pretty clearly show that sleep disturbances in general, and insomnia specifically, increase during that time. That part of it has to do with hot flashes, which actually seem to be more triggered by the awakening and not the other way around, but where sleep becomes a little more shallow, they have more hot flashes at night, it becomes harder to resume sleep, there might be more other physical discomforts, and that there might be emotional ones too, that can lead to more insomnia. So that does seem to be a time of particular vulnerability. The bad news is that it seems to be a very common thing that's harder to treat than more run-of-the-mill insomnia because there's so many physical things that are still actively going on that are not really easy to clear out of the way. It is still treatable, but it's a little bit different. 
But the other good news that I want to put out there is that actually the data show that after 65, actually women tend to show improvements in sleep. Even as older adults might have more sleep problems than younger, women postmenopause tend to sleep better than when they were going through that perimenopause and menopausal transition. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel for whatever that's worth. Do you typically see any improvements or changes for those women? And again, it's a very personal choice. I very much understand that. And there is, of course, some debate around this. And I would point people to going to my friend's podcast and website, Dr. Peter Atia, regarding this, which is hormone replacement therapy for women. But staying outside of the waters of yes versus no, for those people who elect yes, does it at all change the sleep problems? Or no, really, I just have not seen that in my clinical practice when they have instigated hormone replacement therapy or HRT. I don't know enough to know. I think that there's so many other variables in a real world situation like that. It also depends on when they're doing it, because when all the Women's Health Initiative data said before all that, lots of people were doing hormone replacement therapy. And then the data came out saying that it might increase risk for certain cancers. And so everyone stopped doing it. And now it's sort of starting up again. And so when you were in the period where it was sort of frowned on, the women who were doing it tended to have more of other risk factors as well which is why they were leaning toward that direction anyway. It's hard to know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there is, unfortunately, quite a paucity, quite a lack of science regarding and research regarding sleep and menopause. Now, there are people that you and I know who are doing amazing work on this. But if you were to think about its impact and the amount of funding that we're putting towards it, I would like to see more. And on that basis, when we ask these questions about not just what is happening with menopause and how do we think about treating it? But then the nuanced questions, which is what happens when people adopt something like HRT? Tell me the meta-analysis that summarized the last 300 studies on HRT and menopause and sleep. It's just not there. So maybe with that said, the last thing I want to note before we come on to perhaps what many people are also excited to learn about, which is how to treat insomnia. Could you just say something about the work that you've done? And I think you've been a pioneer in many different fields of sleep science, which is one of the things I find ultra impressive about you, the polymath nature of your mind. But one of the areas that I think was certainly there were people who had done great work, but until you really came along, I at least wasn't fully aware and you exploded the magnitude of our understanding about race and ethnicity differences and how that impacts both sleep problems, but also the prevalence of insomnia. I became very interested in the concept of sleep in the real world, out of the laboratory, where there's so many impacts on sleep in a real world situation. And at the time, there was this growing recognition of this concept called the social determinants of health. Some people have heard of things like, well, like your zip code, might mean more than your genetic code in terms of your health. And like that's sort of where this comes from, the idea that we don't exist in a vacuum and that there are things that exist outside of us that we might be a part of. Whether we cease to exist or not, they're still there. They're outside of us, but they impact us. We're embedded within those systems. And so there have been systems researchers who've been doing that in other fields, to be honest, like alcohol, smoking, obesity research, exercise research, They've been all over this for decades, and so sleep was just catching up. When I was a postdoc at the time, 
there were a group of us who were interested in this concept and we looked to what other people in other fields had done and we came across this concept of the social determinants of health. So we were thinking, what are the social determinants of sleep? And one of the things we found was when you look at these national data sets that are unbiased, they weren't recruiting for sleep problems, but if you just look to see does who you are and where you come from, does that impact how much sleep you say you get? And it turns out that like, not only is the answer yes, the answer was yes over and over and over again. Every time everyone looked, it was so reliable. It was very interesting. And so what seems to be the case, and that's an asterisk because things are changing and I'll tell you in a minute how they're changing. What seems to be the case is that if you're white in the US, again, this is a very American centric data set because even the concept of race and ethnicity doesn't translate the same in other cultures and countries, but that's a whole other discussion. But in the US, if you're white, you are actually more likely to complain about having sleep difficulties than any other group. Does that mean you're more willing to admit to problems or does that mean you have more problems? Not sure, but that was a very interesting finding. But ironically, if you measured sleep, Actually, if you were in a minority group or a minoritized group where whether or not you were the majority in your community, you're sort of in a minority group nationally, you were actually more likely to have objectively worse sleep. Not only that, but you were getting less. And the starkest difference are Black Americans versus white Americans. And I say Black, so a lot of times these terms throw people, and I just want to say, like, I'm trying to use the scientifically accepted accurate term. There are people who might disagree with certain things and it's always a little murky, but I say white, not Caucasian because Caucasian can mean something very specific and white is actually just broad. And I say black because black could include African-American, but it could also include African, Afro-Caribbean, there's other black populations in the US. And a lot of times these studies aren't specific enough to disentangle whether you're talking about African-American or other black populations. Again, I don't want to get too much into the weeds there, but that's why I'm using those terms to be as correct as possible. But there's black-white differences in sleep. They are the starkest of the group differences, where if you're black in the US, you are more likely to be getting especially insufficient sleep and objectively worse sleep quality. So one study looked at exposure to systemic discrimination, which completely mediated the black-white differences in slow-wave sleep, for example. That was a great paper. Just showing that these differences exist, they're probably not biological, they're probably environmental. The other reliable finding is that Mexican-Americans, they were the one group who reported greater likelihood of getting recommended seven to eight hours. They were getting on average a little bit more and they were reporting fewer symptoms. And then you had other groups, so like American Indians are, are harder to study, it's smaller numbers, but they are also at higher risk. Multiracial adults, there's a lot of margin of error, so they might be higher, might be lower, it, it seems to depend. Asian Americans, there seems to be some of the insomnia issues and sometimes shorter sleep. And other Hispanics, Latinos, the non-Mexican Hispanic Latinos are actually more likely to be getting less sleep, it seems on average which is different from the Mexican-American. And the asterisk that I put on that actually is brand new, hot off the presses data. There's actually a couple of us who were simultaneously working on the same question of, have these patterns changed over time? So I got to give credit to uh, Jordan Jean-Louis, who's in Miami right now, at University of Miami. He was the first to ask this question. And it's shocking that the first paper, the earliest paper I could find was published in 2000. 
That's how old this is. It's not an old question. Also, he's amazing and his work is amazing. We worked on this paper a bunch of years ago where we went back and looked to see black-white differences over time, showing that they hadn't changed since the 70s from 1977 to the 2009 data that we got. Then this past year, we looked at the data since then in the past 15 years or so. And what's interesting is another group did very similar analysis on very similar data. They found the same thing we did that not only are white Americans losing sleep on average, it's not stable anymore. It was holding stable, but especially since 2011, 2012, it's been dropping a little bit a year and it's been dropping in every group. But there are two groups in particular that are losing sleep faster. One is black Americans are losing sleep at more than double the rate of white Americans. More than double, my goodness. More than double. It's about double and a half, if I remember correctly. And there was already a gap. The gap is widening. And the Mexican-Americans, they were losing sleep even faster at almost triple the rate. And there was a gap between Mexican and non-Hispanic white where they were doing a little bit better. It looks like that gap is now closed. So it's changing and it's not getting better. And I think this is an important issue because it's not, again, it doesn't look like these are biological differences. It looks like there's culture issues, there's stress, there's environmental issues. Sleep is universal. You have to sleep whether you're in a nice house in suburbia or if you're in a war zone. And for some people, there's so many pressures that it's not about need, it's about opportunity and ability. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker which is a service that comes out to your home and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is going on inside of you. Hence the name Inside Tracker. They look at your blood, your metabolic signals, your hormonal health metrics, and then they give you a personalized, actionable set of lifestyle changes in response to that readout. And the goal there is to improve your health. I was looking and informed they have some new cardiovascular and new hormonal biomarkers that I'm particularly interested in. One that I'm focused on is something called ApoB, which is an absolutely critical heart health measure. And I get it done now with them somewhere between four to six times a year. Why? Well, my family, unfortunately, has a strong history of cardiovascular disease, so I am checking that pretty ruthlessly. And by the way, I do buy the product myself out of pocket. I don't want to fall prey to any of those trappings and undue incentives. Although, with full admission, I still use my own discount code that you can use to get some money off. And that code for you is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. So just go over to insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. And again, if you want to get that discount, it is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. Thanks very much. Thank you for Firstly, the work that you do in this area, I find it absolutely mission critical. And I think it is 
a unique and different dimension to sleep that has often been discussed, which is sleep of the individual, the physiologies, the mechanisms, the clinical treatments, rather than sleep of society and how we think about it through that lens. Let me come back to sleep in the individual and something that I think people will want to hear about too, which is treatments. So based on your decades of experience in your current clinical practice, what would you say are right now as you see them and as you prescribe them, what are the most effective treatments for insomnia? Big question, I know. Well, actually, it's sort of an easy question. Oh, I love you, Michael. You are just wonderful. If you look at any published guidelines from any medical or professional organization that has written them, and any organization that has looked at the available literature and said, how should we treat adult insomnia? What does the scientific literature say? They all seem to land on the same recommendation. And it's something that a lot of people haven't heard of, or they've heard of and haven't understood it correctly. And that's cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. For example, the American College of Physicians, they're not even a sleep organization. They're internal medicine, but they see, they're on the front lines of all kinds of things. Their guideline actually says, if you have an adult and they have insomnia, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. If you read the recommendation, you'll agree with my paraphrase. Don't even bother with medications if you can avoid it. If they can't get access or if they try it and it doesn't work, nothing works 100% of the time, then in terms of medications, they don't really have anything super specific that they say is world's better than anything else. But but the language you'll notice is very wishy-washy in terms of shared decision-making and pros and cons, which is a way of saying there's no clear answer on the medication side. Now, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has a whole guideline paper on medications basically saying based on the available evidence. And sleep people aren't going to be surprised that when you look at the evidence, the medications out there that actually seem to be helpful are ones that are FDA approved for insomnia, like Ambien and, and other drugs like those. But the evidence for them actually, if you look at the paper, it says the recommendation for those is weak. It's not a strong recommendation because there are a lot of risks involved and it doesn't help as much as a lot of people wish it would. And a lot of the things that are most commonly used to treat insomnia are actually not only fail to stand up against placebo, actually the recommendation shows if you have a choice between doing those and nothing, might as well do nothing because at least nothing doesn't have side effects. And those are popular things like trazodone and melatonin, which are very common. Yeah, I think we have to speak about the M word. And by the way, I love the way you think. You think very much like my dear friend Petrus here, which is not just what is the cost of doing something in terms of a medication, but what is the potential upside as well as cost to not doing something. So you came back to the dreaded M word, which is when it comes to sleep, the word that makes most sleep researchers cringe, which is the word Matt Walker. And, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding you. Uh, it, which, is the, which is the word melatonin. Tell us about melatonin. I've spoken a lot about it and I have tried to echo, I think, many of the things you're about to say, but help us better understand melatonin. You say it once, Matt says it a second time, Michael says it a third time, and then people finally hear it. Go for it, Michael. All right. So people ask me, well, do you recommend melatonin? I say, I recommend melatonin at the doses it works, at the timing that it works for all the things that it does. And I do not recommend melatonin at doses and timing and for things that it doesn't do. I know that's flippant. Oh, I don't think it's flippant. I think it's medically accurate. 
Right. That's the thing. I think a lot of people get on this melatonin is great. Melatonin is bad. It's like eggs are good, eggs are bad. Well, they have cholesterol, but they're really high in protein and relatively low calories and they're great. This is why people get confused in this black and white way of thinking. Melatonin isn't all good or all bad. Melatonin is a molecule. What does it do? It does lots of things, actually. It looks like the main thing it seems to be for is actually as an antioxidant, but that's a whole other can of worms, which might be why there's more of it in the gut than in the brain. In fact, I've just done a series on sleep and antioxidants and free radicals, and the second episode discusses exactly that. But yes, coming back to your point. So melatonin is not a sedative. Melatonin is not a sleeping pill. Melatonin doesn't make you sleepy. Melatonin tells your body it's nighttime. And it tells your body it's nighttime with an asterisk. Imagine someone walks into the room of your brain and says, it's nighttime. Now, if your brain sees that person in the room, looks at the window, says, but the sun is out. I know it's not nighttime. Then melatonin is like, okay, fine then, and then leaves because it doesn't have much of an effect when there's light present. Because if you try and tell your brain it's nighttime, at the same time as it's getting bright light, it's not going to believe you. Number two, I know a lot of people know this, but it's worth mentioning, we have an internal clock in our brain that's roughly about 24 hours, a little over 24 hours, as do other mammals. We generally have a rough approximation of where in the 24 hours we are. We're not totally sure, but like if it's the middle of the day, we know it's daytime. If it's the middle of the night, we know it's nighttime. But there's these transition points where we're not totally sure. If you give your body melatonin and it knows it's daytime, it's not going to have much of an effect. Equally important, and this is the thing that people forget, you give your brain melatonin when it already knows it's nighttime, you know, so it's like you're in a dark room, the moon is out, you're looking at the window, the sky is dark, someone walks in the room and says, hey, did you know it's nighttime? You're going to say, well, duh, of course I know it's nighttime, it's nighttime, that wasn't helpful, that didn't add anything. Yeah, exactly. So knowing nighttime nurse doesn't mean that your brain then automatically starts generating wonderful, plentiful sleep. You know, the way the analogy that I think about is melatonin, almost like the starting official at the 100 meter Olympic race, that melatonin can help with the timing of the race with the pistol that begins the great sleep race. But melatonin as a chemical doesn't necessarily participate in the great sleep race itself. That's a whole different set of mechanisms. So why would one expect it? to be beneficial and helpful. Thank you. Right. And so when people take it and then they get sleepy, it's not the melatonin that made them sleepy. It's the melatonin that told their body it was nighttime and their body used that information to drive sleep up. And actually, usually people are taking doses that are too high. So think of it this way, that your melatonin is low. In the evening, you start producing it, peaks in the night, stays high, drops precipitously right around the time you're about to wake up. And by the time you're mostly awake, your melatonin is mostly gone, right? I mean, you know this, I know this, but, but people may not know this. But if you take a bunch of melatonin, what you're doing is you're increasing the area under that curve. If you're taking a low dose, you're adjusting the timing of the curve, which is probably what you want to fall asleep faster. But if you take a higher dose, you can't process that much melatonin that fast. Your body doesn't actually produce that much. It doesn't need much. And so when people are taking these high doses of melatonin, they didn't have time to metabolize it all. So what's happening is your melatonin is trying to drop. There's just so much in there, it can't drop. 
until later. And then you wake up and you're feeling groggy. And that's just because you have too much left over. That actually meant your dose was too high. Yeah. And it's typically what we call a supra physiological dose, supra meaning above, beyond. So supra physiological means that you're dosing the body with a level of a chemical that normally it would never necessarily see during a natural release by your own body. And that's one of the dangers too. The other compound or compounds, I should say, that I would love to get your take on, and you mentioned them earlier when it comes to quote-unquote sleep aids, is the idea of marijuana, cannabis, and specifically the division between the two components, the psychoactive component called THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, and then CBD, which is the non-psychoids, the part that doesn't make you necessarily high. And both of them have been prominent in featuring in sleep. One of the big rises of the cannabis industry of late has been people reaching out for it as a thought that it may help their sleep. In your clinical practice, how often do you see it? How often do people describe it? Is it common? And secondly, what are your typical recommendations? I see it a lot in people who feel like I've tried all the things. I haven't tried this one yet. Let me try that. Let me try everything before I actually talk to someone who knows what they're doing. That's fine. No judgment, but like I could have made this easier for you. It doesn't help that the advertising, like you mentioned, is, is all over the place. So the data on THC and CBD seem to be very different. First of all, the data on THC seems to be that in the short term, it does seem to be sleep promoting. People do tend to fall asleep faster and stay asleep a little more consolidated and, and maybe wake up feeling better in the short term. But there's three problems with THC that it seems, and three and a half problems. So problem number one is that it's a potent REM suppressor, like a lot of antidepressants. That's what the data suggests. I know it's a little murky. I don't know how confident to be at that, but it does seem to be a pretty potent REM suppressor, which might be why you get some of the dream-related side effects. Number two, maybe more importantly, is that the effects reduce over time. And so it seems like short-term use does seem to help with sleep for a lot of people on average. But once you cross from short-term to chronic use, actually, it doesn't seem to be that helpful for sleep anymore, where people have to start escalating doses to get the same effect. And then you're getting more side effects and negative effects, and that's not good. And then the third problem is that when you stop, you can definitely have a pretty strong rebound insomnia that can last for weeks. And so what ends up happening, including the rebound insomnia, then all of a sudden you get a REM rebound. So people talk about having vivid dreams and nightmares when they stop. And so then they say, I needed to keep the nightmares away when actually the nightmares are, are, were a withdrawal symptom that were going to go away on their own. And you're just kicking the can down the road because you'll revisit that again. So those are the three issues. And then the three and a half one is that unless you're using it as a short term sort of thing and or whatever, again, I don't judge. But if you're going to be using it for what it seems to be helpful for, if you're trying to use it to fix a sleep problem, there's probably something better out there with fewer side effects that has a greater likelihood of actually helping in the long term. Again, I don't think anyone's wrong for trying it. It's just there's probably something better. Not that it's terrible and doesn't work, but there's probably something better. CBD, on the other hand, is, seems to be a lot more complicated, where there's all kinds of literature on CBD, say for anxiety and relaxation, but a lot of people get confused between something that promotes relaxation and something that 
improves the ability to sleep. And they because people think that more relaxation equals better sleep. And the truth is a lot of people with insomnia can be very relaxed and they still can't sleep. And they think their anxiety and, and their relaxation is the main barrier to sleep, but it really isn't. That's why if you look at the clinical trials with CBD, they are all over the place. Some of them show great benefits versus placebo. Some of them show that it made sleep worse versus placebo. Most of them, I think, were negative versus placebo. And the meta-analyses just sort of wash it all out and say, eh, we don't really know what to make with CBD. It seems to be highly dependent on what the dose and the timing and, and all these issues. I don't think we know what to do with CBD and sleep yet. I think, just like with THC, I think there's something there. I just don't know that we've refined it and optimized it and made it super helpful yet for the majority of people. That's what I know about THC and CBD. There's also CBN. There's a couple supplements out there that are using CBN, and I don't remember seeing anything on CBN. So I did a search on CBN to see what do we know about CBN and sleep. And I found a couple studies and... So nothing really that I could hang my hat on. Yeah, I did that too. I looked a few and a few animal studies maybe, but none of these things, THC, CBD, or CBN have anywhere near the data that other approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia have. Why bother try something that has a low likelihood of actually helping that has a high risk of side effects that costs you more money versus something that, that might work better, which is a perfect segue. We won't get into too much detail regarding cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. If folks look at the last episode in my series on insomnia, I'll try to break down the different general components of CBTI. So, and I'm mindful of your time here for this episode. But one of the things I wanted to take a step back on is I think this can certainly incorporate, and I think probably will do, aspects of CBTI rather than that crass idea of saying, what are your top tips for better sleep? I'm kind of a little bit allergic to that phrasing. I wonder why. Yeah. Like you, I just love talking about sleep. So I'm never actually offended. I'm too British to be offended. But what would you say are the three to four main suggestions of implementable sleep advice, perhaps some of the mundane or maybe the unconventional that people may not be familiar with regarding the trite stuff that I normally pump out? Tips really isn't helpful because there's stuff you could already Google anyway, and it's usually something that you've already tried. So that's why I like eh, tips. It, it's more like being a sleep researcher who lives in this world. What do we know that we wish everyone else kind of knew and it would make their sleep life that much easier if they knew this? If I had to put them in three buckets, one is sort of what happens before you get into bed, what happens when you're in bed, and what happens when you get out of bed. So before bed, Anyone who says, I get into bed and like I just have a hard time turning my mind off, that to me sounds like I'm driving my car, I want to stop at this intersection, and I slam on the brakes, but I just can't get my car to stop. And it doesn't stop until I'm halfway into the intersection. I wanted it to stop earlier, but it didn't. And so then you ask the question of, how fast were you going? When did you start braking? And the answer is, I was going 100 miles an hour, and I started braking two millimeters before the stop sign. And so, well, of course you ended up halfway in the intersection and you kept going past when you wanted to stop because there's nothing wrong with your car. There's nothing wrong with the brakes. The intersection didn't come too soon. You didn't give yourself enough time to prepare. Physics doesn't work that way. We exist in space. We're not just an idea of a person. We're an actual person. And just like you can't go from 30,000 feet to parked at the gate at the flick of a switch, 
our brain isn't a flick of a switch either. You need to come in. And if you don't come in for the landing a little more slowly, you're still going to bring all that momentum into the bed with you. It's going to take the time. Your brain needs that time and space. It's going to take it whether you give it to it freely or not. And what happens is over time, if you don't give yourself the mental and physical space to wind down before you get into bed and you end up taking it in bed, goes right back to what we talked about before. How do you cause chronic insomnia? Bring all kinds of activation into the bed with you. Make it predictable that when you get into bed, you're struggling and your mind is active and you can't fall asleep and you have all this activation. There's a way to create chronic insomnia by not having a good bedtime routine. So you need to have a bedtime routine that gives you enough time and space to calm your body and your mind and you take care of the environment with your body. We talked about that a little bit earlier with pain and with other physical stuff. Mentally, we talked about relaxation. Relaxation is not distraction. Distraction is passive. Relaxation is active. And then environment, we didn't get to talk about that much earlier, but you've talked about this a lot with light and noise and all these things. One thing that people can think about is, are you turning the volume down on your environment? Are you making the lights dimmer? Are you slowing down the conversation? If you're watching TV or watching a screen, you don't go to sleep jail. It's just harder to disentangle. But like my rule of thumb is, fine, if you're going to be watching a screen anyway, whether I tell you to or not, if you're going to, and if it's the kind of thing where I say, okay, put it down now, and you can't, well, that's probably too engaging. If you could be like, yeah, okay, I can put it down now. Maybe it wasn't too engaging to get in the way. I don't know. Stuff like that, where you want to make it so that you have the ability to get into bed. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when you're in bed. And I know you talked about this when you talked about CBTI components, but stimulus control. Stimulus control is bang for your buck, the best sleep habit to get into, because you could have great sleep and have great stimulus control, or you could have crappy sleep and practice good stimulus control. And in both cases, it will help. For the people who have sleep disturbances, good stimulus control, which is using the bed just for sleep and then in parentheses and sex too, it's easy to sort of tease that sleep researchers say this and it, it's very out of touch and how can you do that and blah, blah, blah. What I mean is, forget use the bed just for sleep. Fine. You don't like that phrase. Think about it this way. Make it so that when you get into bed, sleep becomes predictable. If you're getting into bed and sleep is not predictable, get out of bed. You want bed to equal sleep. You want that to be a reliable connection and you can control the bed side of the equation even if you can't control the sleep side. So control the crap out of that bed side of the equation to make it so that being in bed is predictably tied with sleep. This podcast is supported by Athletic Greens, which is now known as AG1. AG1 is a comprehensive nutritional drink that contains countless key health components. Actually, let me stop there. I say countless, but I actually know the company. I know how the product is made. And I believe at last count, it's over 75 different vitamins, minerals, probiotics, prebiotics, and other whole food nutrient sources. I do drink AG1 every day for the record. And also for the record, I buy my own supply because of all of the obvious integrity trappings that come with the free product. 
I know the company well, I know how the product is made, and I genuinely trust in their manufacturing. They are registered and approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. They also have GMP stamps, which means Good Manufacturing Practice Badges. Basically, they're rigorous. So if you'd like to pick up an offer and get some money off your first order, and also get some free travel packs, just go to the link drinkag1.com forward slash Matt Walker. So that's drinkag1.com forward slash Matt Walker. And you will get some money off your purchase. So again, last time, that is drinkag1.com forward slash Matt Walker. In truth, I do also use uh, my own link to try and get some money off. Uh, I do buy it myself, but I do use the link to get that code money off too. And you can use that link as well. Thanks very much. Is one of the pieces of advice that you would give to say, look, for the past six weeks, I've been really struggling with sleep and I've been really trying to be diligent to getting into bed. Would you at some point start to err on the side of saying, great, you're practicing regularity, you're trying to go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time, you're not being erratic all over the place. But is there a point at which you would say, this is interesting, and I know that you're particularly struggling to fall asleep. I'm going to say, don't worry so much about the clock time and getting into bed at the certain time. I'm just going to say to you, only go to bed when you're feeling really sleepy. And if that's an hour and a half after you normally go to bed, and it means that you only have six hours of opportunity time in bed before you have to wake up for work. Just trust me. And could we do an experiment? Could we give it a try? Is that even reasonable to say, here's another actionable piece of advice if you are struggling with sleep? And it sounds oxymoronic, which is don't get into bed, dot, 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 <laughs> comedy pause. Don't get into bed until you feel really sleepy. And there's no time. There's no time limit for this. Just wait and wait until you really are. And this comes to the idea, make sleep predictable. If you're not ready for sleep, sleep is going to be unpredictably arriving with you. Yes, you give the bed the power to make you sleepy by doing that. Delaying bedtime until you're able to sleep is part of good stimulus control. To use another food analogy, if you've got no appetite, just because you're eating dinner at your regular time, if you're sitting down and staring at your food for an hour, that's not going to increase your appetite. And if you do that for a bunch of days in a row, that's actually going to make dinner time stressful. It's not going to help. Actually, fine. If you don't have an appetite today, fine. Maybe eat a little bit less a little bit later and well, maybe that wasn't enough. Well, okay, well, you'll be more hungry tomorrow. And then dinner time isn't going to be as stressful. So sitting there staring at your food for an hour isn't helpful. You're exactly right. It's okay to delay bedtime, especially in a short term, because if you're not going to sleep anyway, remember, sleep isn't something you do. Sleep is something that happens when the situation allows for it. If you can't control the situation to make it allow for sleep, like you have some activation that you can't get rid of or something, then stop trying. It's not going to happen. And trying to make it happen when it's not going to happen is what creates the conditioned arousal. That's why this is so important, because it sets the foundation for everything else to work, or it takes away the foundation so that things end up not working because it's making the bed not on your side, on the side of wakefulness. If you practice good stimulus control, don't get into bed till you're ready. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, can't get back to sleep, get up, take a break, go back, make the bed be the place you sleep reliably. 
predictable predictable i mean what i love about this is people can even do their own experiment where you could just say look do this for me tonight maybe if you could just take 10 minutes at some time during the day and write down to me looking back on the basis of your last month of sleep or the last year of sleep when has sleep been consistently good list me the things that have been always there that have always led to the high probability of sleep occurring those may also be things to pay attention to within my own autobiography let me think about making sleep reliable when has it been reliable what do i think were the the causes how can i instigate those again the third one is what you do in the morning when you wake up and that is as soon as you get up you put your feet on the floor you get light and you start moving and it seems like not only is the movement a daytime signal and the light is a daytime signal but the new data is showing that the oxygen utilization by your skeletal muscles when you start moving, the oxygen utilization itself becomes a daytime signal and reduces your sleep inertia, helps you wake up faster, and it helps set your clock for the morning so that it can help your body predict when nighttime is going to come. So not only does it help get you more energy and feeling better faster earlier by getting moving and you can shed the sleep inertia faster, but if you make that regular, you make the start of the day happen at a predictable time, which makes the end of the day happen at a predictable time. One thing begets the other, and so goes the golden cycle of virtuous sleep. I think my last question then in closing, we've spoken a lot about the different approaches to treatment, and we've mentioned CBTI. You've covered almost all of the principles of CBTI, and again, folks can have listened to the podcast I did on the last episode on CBTI. But... I would say that something I didn't mention, and I think a lot of people now hearing this will all want to say, I am buying the first plane ticket to Arizona and I'm going to see Michael Grandner because this guy clearly has the keys to unlocking my insomnia. But obviously you're not available to the hundreds of thousands of people listening who do have insomnia, but who do not have access to you. Where can people go to to try to find this thing called CBTI? Because in my understanding is that there is a profound demand supply mismatch, that there are so many people who are in need of CBTI, but they don't quite know where to get the supply of it from, despite their demand for it. Where should people look? And I can always, and we will include anything that you say in the sleep notes in terms of websites. Sure. There's two directories that you may find very helpful. One is the directory from the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. That website is behavioralsleep.org. That is the professional organization of people like me who are behavior scientists and behavior-based therapists like psychologists and social workers and therapists who are, have training in this. Their website has an international directory which has been recently updated to include telehealth. So another thing a lot of people don't know is that because of the, it's really mostly since COVID that telehealth is booming. And so if you find someone in your state that might not even be in your city, they could probably see you via telehealth. That's fine. And even if they're not in your state, there's a number of people, especially in, in private practice, there's a thing called SIPACT, which is a national law, which is a law across the U.S. where a lot of states have signed on, where if you're licensed in one state, you can see someone in telehealth in another state. So even if you don't see anyone in the directory near you, the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, behavioralsleep.org directory actually lists 
which states might actually, even if you're not in that state, what states can you see people in via telehealth? So it's, that's important to know. The other directory, by the way, is hosted by the University of Pennsylvania. The website is just cbti.directory. And it, it's, again, it's also international. It's people who've been trained in this. A third directory that might be helpful is at sleepeducation.com. That's hosted by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, which is the main organization of sleep physicians, like the medical doctors. So they usually don't do CBTI, but A, they can diagnose and treat all the sleep disorders. They can help with insomnia if, they, if they, you don't have anyone that you have access to, but they also might know who they could refer to locally as well. Those are the directories to keep in mind. And we will link to those three and folks can dig in and try to get the help that they need. Also, if they wish, they can also just go and see the doctor, their primary care physician, and they can ask about this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Some doctors, based on work that lots of our colleagues have done in the field, will not know too much about it, nor its efficacy, because it's not their fault. On average, doctors, if you survey some nations, uh, maybe eight or nine of them, based on the medical curricula, doctors will, on average, only get about an hour and a half of sleep education relative to the one third of their lives that they will be sleeping for their patients. So just make them aware, and that's another possibility. Michael, you are an absolute gem of a human being, but you are such a precious commodity in terms of what you've contributed to the field of sleep science in terms of research. But if you listening were to ask any one of his patients, you would hear a description of one of the most erudite, compassionate, caring, and incredibly effective clinicians. It's almost dream doctor-esque in terms of clinician that you would meet. Michael, for all of your time here and for all that you've done in the past, and also all that you've done for me in the past, thank you so much. Anytime. And thank you very much. And thank you for all that you do in helping to, to spread the message of all this. Thank you, Michael. Take care.